0: The torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. He battled the talking heads and cynics in Washington to save GM and Chrysler. The
1: only thing we have to fear is fear itself.
0: He battled the Great Recession to save Michigan's capital city from bankruptcy.
1: This
2: big, bold country that we love, that's what I see. That's the America I know.
0: Now he's on a mission to save the America that brought his father from Italy and millions of immigrants to build the greatest nation in the world. And I do believe that the office of citizen is the highest office in this country. Here he is, America, Verge Bernaro. Good afternoon and welcome. I am Verge Bernaro, and you're on The Verge Show uh, with me. We have a big show for you today. We're going to talk with award-winning journalist, Vietnam veteran, and author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald, Tim O'Brien who is now a senior advisor to the Bloomberg for president campaign, cannot wait. And we'll discuss Trump's power to pardon his friends with distinguished law professor, Dan Koble. What can Trump legally do? What is he likely to do? We will discuss that and more with professor Dan Koble uh, who's one of the foremost experts on the pardon and clemency, uh, how, it is, how it is used and sometimes abused uh, by politicians. Well, uh, impeachment is behind us. The Trump purge and pardon tour is in high gear. Uh, you may have noticed the president's been busy punishing his enemies uh, and, uh, you know, going after them, uh, firing them, uh, of course, badmouthing them. And then there's uh, the inklings of pardon. You're starting to hear about poor uh, Stone. Uh, what's his first name? I always want to say Oliver. Uh, Roger Stone. Uh, yeah, you know, the weirdo, Roger Stone, with the Nixon tattoo on his butt or something. Um, uh, can I say he's a weirdo? I mean, maybe he'll sue me. Um, and you know, that's the order of the day with the Trumpians. I mean, this guy that we're going to have on, uh, in a minute, uh, from Trump Nation, this Tim O'Brien, this great patriot, Trump sued him for $5 billion. That's billion, uh, not, not million. And, uh... Just a typical overreach, Trump overreach. And, of course, he lost. He appealed. He lost again uh, because the guy just told the truth in his book, Trump Nation. And, of course, Trump doesn't want that. I mean, as we know, Trump has a war on the truth. But uh, so uh, he, he's, Trump is going to continue to try to punish those who speak out against his criminality. Uh, and, uh, of course, he's trying to cement total control over the Justice Department. And uh, that's what we call Trumpocracy. We're living in an era where now Trump is trying to consolidate his power. And it's always bothered him. You remember how he went after Sessions constantly? I mean, and Sessions was his good buddy. Sessions, I think, was, was one of the first, if not the first, senator to come out and endorse Trump. And so he thought, man, I've got this ally. I'll put him at the Justice Department. And, you know, like a mob boss, I won't have to worry about anything. Uh, I can get away with murder, quite literally, as he said, you know, on Fifth Avenue, Uh, because I got my buddy Jeff Sessions here. Well, when Sessions recused himself from uh, the Russia stuff, uh, Trump just went mad and it it, it constantly uh, drove him crazy. He constantly battered uh, uh, Sessions about the head and shoulders for that. And now he's finally got Bill Barr, Fred Flintstone, I like to call him. Uh, He's got Barr, his henchman. At the attorney general's office, and it's sad and sick what he's doing. Um, I refer you to my Facebook page um, where I said uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday morning, I said, this is how the rule of law dies over time. Prosecutors, generals, even judges will just do as the president, as Trump uh, wishes, without any noise or fuss. Trumpism is an insidious disease that is eating away at our democracy. Election 2020 may be our last chance to stand up for the America we love. Now, some people would call that hyperbolic, what I put on my Facebook. I encourage you to go there and, uh, you know, let me know what you think. Uh, I'll be happy to argue with you if you're wrong. Um, But uh, that's why I say we're in an age, I mean, we're in a battle to maintain democracy over Trumpocracy. Uh, Trump is literally trying to take control of all the reins of our government. Uh, and he does that with compliant people like Bill Barr, Fred Flintstone, at the AG's office. And, you know, I mean, you could say it's demeaning for me to, to call him Fred Flintstone, but, I mean, he's no kind of a lawyer. He's a joke of an AG. He's not standing up for the rule of law. He doesn't represent us. He's Trump's personal attorney. So uh, uh, on, uh, on the phone, I'm, I'm uh, very pleased uh, and, and just delighted that we have uh, Tim O'Brien uh, who is a uh, award-winning journalist? Uh, as I said, author of Trump Nation: The Art of Being the Donald. Back in 2005, I mean, this guy had Trump's number in 2005. He's now a senior advisor to the Bloomberg Presidential Campaign. I look forward to asking him about that. Um, and he's a Vietnam veteran, and uh, 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 so uh, he's here. I'm
2: not a Vietnam veteran.
0: Oh, you're not. I thought you were. No, t- that's
2: Tim O'Brien, the, the novelist who I admire very much. But I'm uh, I'm Tim O'Brien, the senior advisor to Mike Bloomberg and a journalist.
0: All right, fantastic.
2: But that's okay. I get that. Sometime in restaurants, people bring me up Tim O'Brien's novels to sign, and I'm flattered.
0: It's, but and, and not and,
2: that guy.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you for the correction. I stand corrected. I apologize. Just goes to show you, it's all good. My it's all good. I, I, I need better commu- communication with my production uh, guy, who was who was out sick, but managed to bring you in. Um, so. Uh, I, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Happy to be here. So we're through our, our first couple primaries, uh, and Mike Bloomberg's name isn't there. Uh, what gives? Well, because Mike's not getting camp, campaign in the first four primary states.
2: Two down, two to go. When everybody comes out of those states, they're going to discover that we're in 45 other states and territories with about 2,100 people on the ground. Um, and... We're obviously having an impact. Mike's now uh, in third place in a number of national polls. We've been making big strides across the board. I think that uh, other, you know, other um, candidacies are clearly taking notice of this, and, um, uh, and we're confident that this is going to continue to mount the interest in him, uh, what he's done, uh, his track record as someone who's actually governed um, is apparent to
0: people. So Tim, what was your, uh, if I can ask, uh, about your, uh, political background, we'll talk about Mike Bloomberg's political background a bit. Uh, uh he's, he's a little better, better known in terms of being mayor of New York, uh, and, uh, of course the Bloomberg empire, uh, but uh, what about your your uh, political background that brings you to this? Uh, major well, I've position? always been an
2: observer, Vern. I mean, yeah, as a uh, business, politics, international affairs, as a as a writer, editor, reporter, and columnist, uh, um, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and then most recently, I oversaw Bloomberg Opinion, uh, the commentary arm of Bloomberg News, uh, and began working uh, with Mike in twenty thirteen uh as part of that that's when i first got to know mike when he decided to run for office um he asked me to come aboard as his senior advisor i think uh part of that was he he wanted someone who could speak candidly to him about policy i also have a long and and uh somewhat accidental familiarity with donald trump by virtue of uh um different parts of my life as a journalist i was a research assistant on the first big biography written of Trump in 1992. Uh, I wrote a book about gambling in the mid-2000s that I interviewed him for. And then when I was at the New York Times, I wrote Trump Nation. And he spent quite a bit of time with me for that book. Um, we flew around the country together, uh, talked you know hours each week. Uh, when the book came out, he did not like it. He sued me for libel. He lost that suit. Uh, during the course of the litigation, I got access to his tax returns. His business and financial records, and we deposed him about all of that under oath for two days. That's a public document, by the way. It's a very so you, revealing document.
0: So you can answer this question once and for all about you know uh, his his wealth. We uh, is he you know whether he is in fact a billionaire? I saw where he said maybe was it you who, was it during your deposition where he said some days he feels like a billionaire, some days he doesn't. It depend when he, when he was asked about his net worth, he said it sort of depends on how I feel. That, day? that
2: was in that deposition. Good, good job. Yes, it was. And, and he, <laughs> um, during I'm, that same deposition, you know, he couldn't provide us with figures about how he determined the profitability of the golf courses that he owned, which uh, were struggling at the time. And, and when we pressed him on this, he kept saying how profitable they were, but he couldn't show us any information to back that up. We so, asked him what methods he used to determine their profitability, and he said, quote-unquote, mental projection. And and I think we are all now living in a, with Trump in the White House, uh, having to deal with the consequences of a lot of his mental projections. Yeah, amen,
0: uh, uh, bingo. So so you and I have one big thing in common besides our great love and admiration for President Trump. Uh, we were both elected student body president, if I understand that correctly, at our colleges. <laughs> um, now now, were you a good student body president? I, first? I, I was reelected twice. Um, so I think so. Uh, now, now anyone who has served in such a position. I also
2: position, want to say I was recently in Lansing in
0: December. Oh well, uh, I next was,
2: t- I crisscrossed Michigan and I went down to Battle Creek to a Trump rally. But um, next time you'll have to. Call. I was just talking. We'll I will. We'll have to get, we'll have it, to get coffee. Was, so it was a pleasure to talk to Michigan. Voters that, so anyone
0: that. who has served in a position like student body president—I mean, that is grassroots, my friend. That that is public service. I mean, at the at the at the grassiest, grassroots level. Do you think that Donald Trump and other business types who go into politics are hindered by a lack? And, I, and I'm excluding Mike Bloomberg because Mike Bloomberg, of course, was mayor of New York for three terms. So like me, he was mayor for three terms. He knows what it is to govern. But I'm asking you, Donald Trump and other business types who go into politics—are they hindered by a a lack of political experience or understanding of public service as a result of never serving in prior elected office?
2: I don't think having served in business, you know, excludes one. You know, I I think in addition to Mike, uh, 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 Manny Diaz, the mayor of Miami, ran for mayor after having never served before. Um, What I think matters, and, and I think politicians with a lot of experience like you understand this, is that you have to listen closely to voters themselves and help solve their problems. Whether you come into it cold, whether you come into it with an unusual background, whether you've got ample political experience, I think the most successful politicians are people who are good listeners and are determined to solve complex problems. I think that was your reputation as the mayor of Lansing. That was Mike's reputation as the mayor of New York.
0: Um, yes, bless uh, you. I, and Aaron? I saw it. And, and of course, Mike Bloomberg went beyond, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mike Bloomberg went beyond just solving problems in New York, which he did, and he, and, and what huge things to tackle. But but he, through the Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies, uh, the Bloomberg Foundation, uh, actually tackled problems facing urban core cities around the country. I mean, he, yeah. I, I, again, as I've said, this is a guy at, at I might in his position be sitting on a beach, okay? But this is a guy that that rolls up his sleeves and continues and has time for mayors like like the mayor of Lansing has time for for a mayor a, a city of 50,000, 100,000, 150,000. Uh a lot of mayors at those mayors conferences, the big the big mayors of the big cities, you know, really are in a class by themselves. And they really don't have time and aren't and have no interest really in 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 flyovers type cities. Mike Bloomberg always has, and I'm just saying this is not a paid commercial. Uh, Mike Bloomberg always has; uh, he 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 cared and he took time. And you know he, uh, you can say he's a technocrat, okay? But he cares. He's a yes. He 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 cares about solutions. Well, I think I think
2: the interesting issue is
0: why does he care?
2: Why does a guy who's a yes. billionaire care? My response to that is uh, when when the Bloomberg's moved into their neighborhood in Medford, Mass, as a kid, nobody wanted a Jewish family on the block and they had to hire a lawyer to buy the house for them so they could move into that neighborhood. When Mike went to college, he couldn't afford uh, Johns Hopkins, where he studied engineering. He had to work as a parking lot attendant and get loans to get through college. I think Mike has lived a life in which he understands how valuable it is to people to get a leg up so they can pursue opportunity and have hope.
0: And, and I the, he, think that's And like shared that. him his shared that He has shared you know? that uh, God bless him uh, w- The Financial Empowerment Center That is alive and well Up and running In the city of Lansing Thanks to Mike Bloomberg And his foundation uh, Is giving people a ladder up It is giving giving people hope And not just blind You know, faith Whatever a Hope that uh, and, and a ladder That they can climb If they choose and, and, and it's teaching people How to fish Not just giving them a fish I gotta get in A couple more questions uh, Donald yep. Trump has called you A quote Really, really dishonest writer, end quote, and a, quote, really stupid talking head, end quote, and a, quote, dumb guy with no clue, end quote, among other things. Now, we don't have time to list all of your academic and literary awards, achievements, and accolades, but suffice to say that you're a man of letters, an undisputed scholar, and gentleman. I'd like you to once and for all address the issue of the Trump intellect. Is Donald Trump a, quote, very stable genius, end quote?
2: I would just refer people to a great YouTube video with Donald Trump and his children on the Howard Stern show, and he asks them to multiply 16 by 7, and the three of them can't. You'll find that anywhere on Google. Donald Trump doesn't read, he can't do basic math, he has no interest in public policy, he has no authentic interest in working class people and middle Americans and their problems.
0: But he wears Uh, that hat. He wears that hat so well. I mean, he's one of the first presidents I can ever remember wearing a hat like that all the time.
2: It's not a hat, he's a con man. (laughs) He's not wearing a hat. He is the biggest and most successful con man of certainly of the 21st century and probably of the last 100 years. A lot of, I think, average Americans who need difficult things solved, like access to high quality health care, jobs that are real avenues into the middle class, uh, access to good quality public education. Trump hasn't solved any of those problems. He campaigned saying he would, and particularly for residents of Michigan, uh, in the farming communities and manufacturing communities, he said he would revive those those industries. He didn't, and and that's a con. But he made people believe he would. But they don't seem, the they don't seem wake to hold, up to that. They don't
0: seem to hold it against him. And I, I, I want to ask you about, I have a couple other questions, and I want to ask you about the cell phone and the Twitter and his ability to talk directly to 55 million people or more for the first time. Mm-hmm. He's the first president to be talking directly to his foot soldiers, directly to his stormtroopers. He's the first one that can talk directly. And I want to talk about the implications of that. But first, let me ask you, it has been said that we are living in the era of alternative facts. And by the way, these are my questions. Nobody gave me these. It has been said that we are living in the era of alternative facts, ushered in by Trump and Congress Company, as articulated most boldly by Trump and chief propagandist Kellyanne Conway. But you have been called a practitioner of uh, veris militude. I can't really say it. Veris militude for <laughs> years prior to Trump's ascendancy, I believe. Now, nobody knows what I'm talking about, but are Donald Trump's constant exaggerations and outright lies, his own crude form of veris militude? Well, look what he doing. Am, am I mispronouncing I think the, that? You can the... correct me on the pronunciation. Uh, uh too. Uh,
2: I think one of the things we're going to live with for a long time, Berg, is Donald Trump's war on objective reality and the facts. And it's really important in a bipartisan way, I think, in, a, in, a, in around civics and the life of this country that we really recognize the fact that 90% of what he says is a lie. And he's a pathological liar. He can't uh, control himself most of the time, even when he can control himself. He doesn't because he likes creating an alternative reality around who he is what he's done and what he's doing for other people. He's essentially hiding from the American public using a smoke screen of lies that he puffed out to life. Oh, yes,
0: and and Tim, but when when Kellyanne Conway said that was a that was a, a turning point, I think, in America that, that was a seminal what they call a seminal a seminal moment. Yes. When she said on national T V that well there are alternative facts. I think she was talking to Chuck Todd, is that right? Well Chuck yeah. there 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 are alternative facts. She, I think she was the first one in my in modern times to say publicly, I mean, people tried to spin. There was always spin. But she basically said to say facts. There are alternative facts. I was raised to believe there are facts and then there are, yes. you know, half truths. But she says, no, there's there's fully baked alternative facts. And she was the first one to have the gull, the, the incredible uh, uh, chutzpah to say that.
2: Well, and you know, we can have partisan and political differences about the facts and and spirited disagreements about what the facts mean. But there was a long time in this country where we didn't overlook the fact that facts existed. And this team of propagandists, of which Kellyanne Conway is a part, you know, Rudy Giuliani at one point said something akin to, there is no truth.
0: Um, Right. uh,
2: You know, Trump famously talked about. truthful hyperbole. Yeah. Um, The fact is they are all lying constantly because they need to hide something. And what they need to hide is that the fact that the president is unhinged, he's not competent, and he hasn't fulfilled his promises to American voters.
0: So I I agree 100 percent, of course. Has there always been this truth likeness thing and therefore the erosion of facts You know, should we not be concerned about the erosion of facts, or should we be concerned that the truth seems harder and harder to ascertain for the average population?
2: I don't think the truth is harder to ascertain. I think there are smoke screens being put around simple sets of facts, Uh, whether it's job creation and what those jobs really look like, whether it's what's behind the climate crisis or gun violence, uh, how much it should cost for for average Americans to get high-quality health care or access to education— There are a lot of facts around those things. We're going to stay focused on those things. And not like Donald Trump continue to bully the American public. Okay, uh, Mike Bloomberg is ready for this
0: well, fight. I have great hope. I have great hope. Uh, I worry though that, that when we talk about ascertaining the facts, that uh, most of Trump supporters are getting their news, and there's some research on this, they're getting their news, uh, like a, a lot of them, from Fox exclusively. And Democrats, recent a, a recent Pew survey uh, showed that Democrats tend to get their news from like five different sources. But a lot of Republicans, and especially Trump supporters, are getting their news exclusively from Fox. And another poll I saw showed that Trump supporters, like, I don't know, I forget the number. I, I, I tried to find it for this interview. I couldn't find it. But like 80% said that they get their news directly from Trump. Like, the, 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 they well, trust those Trump.
2: V- those voters are probably never going to come over to our campaign anyway. There, there is a firm base of people Donald Trump supports who I don't think will get in this cycle. I do think we fully intend Uh, when Mike is president, to deliver solutions into these distressed, struggling communities that Trump has co-opted by actually giving him the help Trump promised and never delivered. But until we have the benefit of an incumbency to be able to do that, we won't be able to. But I think there's a broad swath of Americans in the Democratic Party and independents and moderate Republicans who understand that there is a discernible and important set of facts out there that we all need to hold close so we get good solutions delivered to the American public.
0: I appreciate that. Now, Tim, when you were interviewing, we have just a few minutes more, when you were interviewing uh, uh, Donald Trump, when you had access to him, because I think he was trying to, it seems like he was trying to woo you into his camp yeah. because he knew you were going to be writing this, this book. And then, and then he, he, uh, so during this time period, I mean, you really got the Donald Trump charm offensive, right? I mean, so I wanted to ask you just personally, uh, you seem like a great guy, um, uh, just over the phone. Um, I've never gotten the idea that Donald Trump, uh, for me, that, that he was you know a warm fuzzy, a guy that I would like enjoy chatting with. Was he? Did he have a certain charm to him? Was it? Did did, did was he? Were you almost caught into by by his allure? Were you almost caught into his his uh, what do you say? His shadow, his. Uh, well, his I mean,
2: aura? We, we we enjoyed You know, I think the book I wrote is very accurate. I, I think that's one of the reasons he sued. In fact, uh, it, it it is not a pure scalping. But it is, you know, Trump Nation is a very um, accurate reflection of who Donald Trump is, and nothing in that book changed uh, in terms of who he was 20 years before I wrote the book or who he is now as president. He has been essentially the same guy for about, you know, 60, 60 years or so, you know, since he was a teenager until now. And, um, and, and that's never going to change. He, there was a point in his life where I think he would try uh, to form relationships with people and try to be candid. The reality, though, is he has gone so far off the deep end, I think consumed with power. He's very insecure. Uh, he doesn't form close friendships. So the narcissism,
0: uh, he really basically is just using people, right? Whether it's John yeah, Kelly. Yeah, captive to his own narcissism completely. So, and then one other question I wanted to ask um, uh, that, that I, I said I would ask you, uh, did you believe then uh, I want your honest, obviously you're going to give me your honest, you're an honest guy. Uh, did you, what? How, how much of you was convinced then? Because he, even then people talked about him being president, he talked about it, he flirted yeah. with it. Uh, did you walk away, when you wrote that book, did you feel like this man will be president, this man could be president, or this man will never be president?
2: Absolutely not. I thought he would never be president. I thought he lacked the intellectual and emotional discipline to be president. I thought Um, Most voters would consider him to be a cartoon character and a con man, uh, and I never thought he'd be able to, to, to get into the White House. I did think in 2016 when he ran, I did think he was going to be the Republican nominee. I said that a number of times in public forums. I didn't think he'd beat Hillary Clinton, though. So I was wrong about the general election, but I mean, right but, about but the yes, primary. Yes, many
0: people were, but that was so close that really it could have gone either way. I mean, that's sort of like saying Al Gore and George Bush. I mean, that was but Al Gore's election. But I didn't Gore's expect election. it
2: to be close. I thought that, you know, I thought that she would just completely thump him, and I was completely wrong about that. And I think one of the reasons I was wrong is I underestimated the amount of pain and suffering that exists out in the heartland and the ability of people to sort of give themselves over to someone who had no intention of actually
0: trying to heal their wounds, to, to, because they sort of wanted to send a message, shake things up, do something different, drain the swamp. What he, yeah, they,
2: yeah, and he had, look, Trump, Trump said he would revive industries in decline, and hasn't. And and he said, you know, he blamed it on brown people coming over from the Mexican border, or yellow people from China, or you know, that that person of color who was the previous president, uh, and and that he would, you know, he racialized it and then he simply lied about what he could do to revive steel coal and farming yeah. and heavy industry. Well, I
0: yeah, I agree with all that. I think I think if in if he could pollute more and bring back more coal, he would. It's just it's not going to happen. The people, the industries have gone the other way. I mean, cleaner, greener makes sense. He can't turn back the clock, praise God. But But uh, he may they give him some credit for trying. Uh, And of course, you know, he did. He finally addressed the China, China, China. He finally addressed that. And and Obama was trying to push the TPP, which I was opposed to very clearly on my Facebook. And I went to Washington as a mayor to try to tell him, stop pushing the TPP. But you couldn't tell the the, 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 uh, some of those egotistical Democrats, uh, the elitist Democrats, you couldn't tell them. Uh, anything about Well TPP. But on
2: trade, though, you know, I think where he ended up on trade, I think that hurt manufacturers, I, and I think the manufacturing community would say Trump's trade policy ended up being counterproductive. It hurt yes, them. Yes. it also
0: hurt farmers. That's right. It hurt farmers terribly. And but at least he did send a message to China. I mean, we did need fair trade, not free trade. And uh, I love Mike Bloomberg, and I'm going to have to talk to him about trade. But uh, but Trump, at least, you know, he he. He paid lip service and he gave he you know, he gave them something to hang up, hang up. Uh.
2: Uh, voters deserve more than lip service. Berg. Definitely, you know that.
0: Definitely, definitely.
2: But uh, well, they, I, they deserve the answers. And that's one of the reasons I believe in Mike's candidacy. Well, and so policies
0: funny. that make sense the, 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 you know, Mike Bloomberg and uh, the hard work to enact them and the, and the
2: ability to attract. Strong, distinguished teams of people that you listen to—none of which Trump has done as a manager.
0: No, I mean and that's Mike one of the things. That I, doing that. Again, one of the things I love about Mike Bloomberg, as smart as he is and successful as he is, the guy is not above. You got to admire because we all can learn every day. My wife is an educator, and you know she reminded me. She, when she was a teacher, a principal, you learn from a fourth grader if your ears are open, if you're smart, Correct. and you pay attention, you can learn out of the mouths of babes. But but, and you know,
2: you know, fourth graders no more than Donald Trump. Frankly,
0: you would learn more in a conversation
2: with a fourth grader. They they listen better, they study harder, yeah. And and that's the other one of the other problems we have is that he's not an informed man, and he's got no intellectual curiosity.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, he's got all the answers. Uh, if thing, if things That's are simple true. because for a simple ten, things are simple. Uh, I really appreciate your spending this time. I'm sorry for the little bit of confusion in the beginning. Uh, all but- good. But You definitely were the Tim O'Brien that we want. Uh, It means a lot that you would spend this time with us. I hope we get a chance uh, as the campaign uh, develops, continues to develop here in Michigan, that we get to talk uh, again about Mike Bloomberg, Uh, maybe maybe less about Trump. But uh, but really compare and contrast, because we don't want people to say, oh, well, you know, two billionaires blah, blah, blah. No, there's a big difference. And having sat down, having had the honor of having discussions with Mike Bloomberg uh, when when he had no reason to care about Lansing, Michigan, but he did, like you say, he did based on his background. Uh, and he really cares about all of America. So I look forward to having that discussion again with you.
2: Thanks so much, Berg. It's a privilege to join you.
0: Likewise. Thank you, Tim. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Well, that was Tim O'Brien, author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. If anybody uh, knows, uh, having spent time uh, with him, uh, he really got exposure to the real persona uh, of Donald Trump and the, and the intellect, or lack thereof, uh, of Donald Trump. So uh, if you haven't read it, uh, it's still available Uh, uh, You can order it online, uh, Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald by Tim O'Brien, who is now senior advisor to the Bloomberg presidential campaign, uh, which seems to be taking up. This is going to be a very interesting year. This is really going to be one for the history books as far as a primary. I mean, of course, you had the Republican primary that brought us Donald Trump, which was uh, kind of a raucous, uh, really uh, highly unusual uh, 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 effort uh, and endeavor, and now you've got this Democratic primary. And, you know, I, I, I hear people say, uh, oh, well, uh, the Democrats, you know, they need to get their act together, blah, blah. Yeah, it's called a Democratic primary. It's called a, a primary election, and, and we're a big tent party. And so we've got, you know, Bernie. I, I heard Yang just dropped out. You know, another one bites the dust. But uh, interesting guy, fascinating guy, very bright guy, uh, Yang. And uh, so we're going to stay with this campaign as it develops. Uh, and again, we're a big tent party. As a Democrat, I'll tell you, I'm I'm proud of the options that we have. I'm not afraid because the way I see it, any one of those in the race, any one of them, it not only is better than Donald Trump, but can absolutely beat Donald Trump. I have no doubt that I have my preferences, but wh- whether it's Bernie or Klobuchar or Biden makes a comeback or Bloomberg surges, uh, I any one of these can and should beat Donald Trump. You know, it's always good to have things in life that you can count on, like having the peace of mind that comes with health care coverage from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and Blue Care Network. Peace of mind knowing that you can count on access to the best care and that you'll have the technology like Blue, Cross, Blue Cross's mobile app and Blue Cross online visits with board-certified doctors to make your health care work for you around the clock, Anywhere you go. Anywhere you travel. My friends at Blue Cross have been serving the people of Michigan for over 80 years. That's 80 years of community involvement, making Michigan a healthier place for all of us. And over 80 years of expertise, working with doctors and hospitals to improve care, making it work better for patients. Access to care everywhere. The latest technology to make healthcare work for you. And over 80 years of experience and strength to stand behind you these are things we can all count on from Blue Cross. To learn more, visit mibluesperspectives.com.
1: What's up, it's Jimmy King, and you are watching NRM Streamcast.
0: Is it possible that every person in Michigan, in every zip code, can have access to the most preferred health insurance? Can a company that is always bringing leading edge ideas Alexa, open my
2: blue.
0: also bring the good old fashioned roll up your sleeves work we need to lift up our communities? Are we able to take 80 years of knowledge and experience and apply it every day to help everyone in Michigan? Count on it. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. Confidence comes with every card.
1: Mario uh, fue pintor más de 30 años. Cuando Mario me dijo que tenía problemas en el trabajo, que se le estaban olvidando las cosas, fue difícil. Yo le di a la
2: gente que le diga a su familia lo que está pasando con él. Y quiero que me apoyen, que me entiendan y que me quieran. Hey there, we're uh, Joe and Sarah joe and sarah from pop bad culture yes Mm. and you
1: can catch our show on wednesdays Mm. at noon where we talk about the latest
0: in tv Mm. and movies Mm. and fashion and food
2: Uh. florida's fun too every now and then
0: yeah florida and ohio are always good for Mm. weird news stories so we'll get to that too and his pun game is strong so wednesdays at noon catch us So, welcome back to The Verge Show. Uh, as I said at the intro, uh, the Trump purge and pardon tour is in high gear. He is uh, in the business of punishing his enemies, those that dared to rise up against him during the impeachment, uh, what he refers to as the coup attempt, um, the, uh, the hoax. Um, but uh, the impeachment attempt, uh, now those people that t- dared to testify against uh, the emperor have to be punished. Um, and as part of that, he seems to be really uh, clamping down on the Justice Department um, and also at the same time gearing up um, the, uh, the pardons for uh, guys like Roger Stone, um, perhaps Manafort, Paul Manafort, um, and perhaps uh, Mr. Flynn, uh, people who are in prison as a result uh, of, of um, the investigations. Uh, the Mueller investigation and the, the folks that, that lied and obfusc- obfuscated the truth um, and were adjudicated guilty and are serving in federal prison. Um, we have, hopefully on the line with us, uh, distinguished law professor Dan Koble. Uh, who is a professor at Capitol University Law School in Columbus. He currently teaches constitutional law, criminal procedure, and comparative constitutional law. He is considered to be one of the country's leading authorities on pardons and clemency. And we're going to be talking to him about uh, just uh, what the president can do, what uh, President Trump can do, and what he might do uh, in terms of the uh, presidential pardon uh, for those he thinks uh, deserve some relief. Uh, Professor Koble, are you there?
1: I am here, Ferge.
0: Well, thank you so Thanks. much for joining us. Um, uh, I'd like to, I see you've been in the news on this issue and on the, the pardons that the Kentucky governor, those controversial pardons that uh, uh, he uh, uh, implemented a while back. Uh, so you're certainly uh, well uh, familiar, ensconced uh, on this issue. How sweeping is the pardon power granted to the president under the Constitution?
1: Well, the pardon power is one of the Broadest powers given to the president uh, under Article Two, uh, and the attendant U.S. Supreme Court's decisions interpreting it. Basically, the Constitution allows the president to issue a pardon, commutation, or reprieve in any federal case. Now, re- remember, it's uh, under the laws of the United States. I wanted so, to ask so about th- that yes. If if he had committed a crime, someone committed a crime in Michigan, say under Michigan law, and were you know they were prosecuted, they would have to uh, essentially make an uh, appeal to the governor uh, for a pardon. In uh, so the president can only do federal crimes, and it is limited by the phrase uh, except in cases of impeachment which suggests that the framers of the u.s constitution did not want presidents granting pardons in a way to prevent people from being impeached and removed from office
0: okay and i was going to say i was going to remind our listeners that that impeachment really is there's no uh, criminality there right that's simply removing somebody from holding federal office
1: Exactly, despite the confusion that has been spread about that as if, you know, he has a right to face his accusers, things like that, as if right. it's a criminal proceeding. Right. It is merely removal from office, and that's what the framers considered the, the, the sole purpose of impeachment.
0: So, So let me ask you, is the pardon power both retroactive and prospective, as in the pardon of President Ford? Or President Ford's pardon of Nixon—that was that was prospective, as far as I can understand.
1: Yes, uh, he—you can pardon before conviction, and also after, or even after a sentence has been completely, uh, uh, you know, served. So the president's the timing of it is permitted, as President Ford did with. With uh, former President Nixon, he pardoned him even though he had not been indicted, prosecuted, or convicted of anything. In fact, I once had the privilege of of interviewing President Ford, and I said, I said, well, were you concerned (laughs) that when you pardoned him for... Any offenses he may have committed that you didn't know about, other ones you were pardoning him from things he we, you might not have been aware of. He said, "Well, I knew that he had obstructed justice, and I thought that was bad enough." So In fact, I, I posted
0: I, I, I posted that interview on my Facebook. It's there now. Uh, oh, you did. Your, okay. Your yeah. 2001 uh, interview of President Ford. Um, so. Uh, he obviously, I mean, the the judgment of history, I think, has been you know much kinder to him uh, for that pardon than it was at the at the heated time of the nineteen seventy six election against uh, Jimmy Carter, Governor Carter. I
1: I agree. I, I I completely agree. And after I talked to Ford, what I thought was interesting is that he believed by by Nixon accepting the pardon, he was really admitting that he had violated the laws of the United States mm-hmm. so he saw that as a as a significant sanction that that Nixon suffered in response to those and i think that there is supreme court authority to that effect that says that acceptance of a pardon implies guilt so, so
0: interesting so yeah. so so the so the answer to the question is that a president the presidential pardon power is it can, in fact, legally be prospective. You can, you can pardon somebody in the future to, to avoid future conviction of a federal crime.
1: To avoid future conviction. Now, you can't pardon for a future offense. So it couldn't be, hey, Roger Stone uh, is pardoned for any crimes he commits you know, until he dies. You couldn't do that, but you could pardon him for uh, the a crime that he had not been prosecuted for yet, yes.
0: So, uh, can a, I know you've gotten this question before. Can a president pardon himself?
1: That's something that we don't know. That is something that Nixon considered. We know that. And uh, there is a Justice Department memorandum uh, that said, no, we didn't, they didn't believe that a president could pardon himself. On the other hand, uh, the Supreme Court has never... Uh, ruled on it and you know the primary argument against pardoning himself would be that no person can be the judge of their own case and that we don't have to spell that out in the constitution that you can't be the judge in your own prosecution i mean because if so you it, could
0: pardon yourself you would essentially be a monarch you you would be an emperor you would be you would be the embodiment of the law whereas we we, we I, Right. I mean, we, we say we have the rule of law and we're a government of laws, not of men. But at that point, you would be the law.
1: Oh, exactly. Exactly. If you could pardon yourself. Uh, and um, on the other hand, the, the counter argument is, well, they didn't say it in the Constitution. Uh, and therefore, the only limit on the pardon of power is what's set forth expressly in the Constitution so that is and we've never had a president try to pardon himself so you so know let me ask you this
0: th- could the president prospectively uh, pardon his family for example and in this case his family I mean there, some of them at least are working in the White House uh, could he pardon Ivanka could he pardon Jared Kushner of, of any future For any
1: crimes that they committed up till the date of the pardon yes
0: so that, And that could be pretty expansive, you know, in terms of all of what they're doing in the White House right now.
1: Yes. I, I don't think we know a lot about what they're doing in the right, White House right now. So, he could so yeah, he could – as long as he's pardoning them for violations of federal law, he could indeed do that with, with his family, with any of his, uh, uh, you know, Apportees. associates –
0: Associates. Yep. How does, let me ask you this, professor, how does Trump's use of apparent and his use of and apparent view of the presidential pardon uh, differ from or comport with that of previous presidents?
1: Oh, it's completely out of sync with previous presidents because previous presidents tended to treat the justice department's office of the pardon attorney as the gatekeeper pardons and commutations. For 125 years, the Justice Department has had an office of the pardon attorney that evaluates not all, but, but the vast majority of requests for pardons and commutations, and then makes a, a non-binding recommendation that past presidents have has very, very often followed. It's considered a way to prevent... Um, you know, first of all, uh, uh, you know, perceptions of the pardon power being used in a, in a way that promotes favoritism or, you know, political gain. So past presidents have seen this as a safeguard that they wanted to use. Trump has almost completely ignored the, the Office of the Pardon Attorney and the way that people have gone about getting pardons is simply to reach out to his political base and then get connected people to seek a pardon for him. So Yeah, um, and there's an article,
0: he, there, there are many articles like this, but uh, the Los Angeles Times, for example, uh, in, May, in May of 2019, uh, Trump is politicizing and personalizing the pardon process. Uh, there have been a lot of editorials like this. But uh, he has the legal authority to do so, correct?
1: Uh, yes because this is such a plenary authority stated in the Constitution
0: while you're still with us if you have time I wanted to play an ad that uh, just came out I think today um, by an outfit called um, Republicans for the rule of Law uh, talking about uh, the potential pardon of uh, of Roger Stone do you do you have time to listen to this with us sure. comment on it okay let's let's roll this clip this is a new ad. This is Roger Stone, an advisor to President Trump. He was convicted of seven felonies, including intimidating a witness against him by threatening to kill his dog. Prosecutors asked for him to get at least seven years, but President Trump complained, and immediately Attorney General Bill Barr, the nation's top law enforcement official, intervened to reduce his sentence. Every career prosecutor involved in the case resigned in protest. The criminal justice system shouldn't depend on being friends with the president. The law must apply the same to everyone. .com is who, the, who sponsored that. Now, you are a professor, a distinguished professor of law. Uh, how – I want to ask you about the ad, but I want to ask you, in that ad, they talk about how all of these federal prosecutors resigned, uh, I guess, when they realized that Bill Barr was intervening on behalf of the president. Uh, how unprecedented is that and should we be concerned lawyers and non-lawyers who care about democracy and the rule of law
1: we should be deeply concerned verge i i've never seen anything like that people involved who've served in the us justice department have never seen anything like this this is a politicization of our justice system that is unprecedented, and I I think that even if because Barr has said the president didn't ask me anything and I didn't, uh, you know, he didn't intervene. He just tweeted, and we happened to do that. Even if there is no trail of breadcrumbs between Trump and Barr and this Justice Department decision, it's almost even a worse thing because that would mean that. The high-up officials of the Justice Department are monitoring the, the actions and words and whims that they, that they theorize would please the president, and they are going to pervert the justice system to serve those ends. Uh, you know, it's it's something that just shocks me as a law professor. I want to point and, you,
0: I want to point you, I want you to, uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to finish that thought. Obviously, we're going to have to have you back on. But I want to point you to uh, an editorial in CNN that just came out at 1229 uh, uh, today um, that happened to come across my screen. Uh, I don't know who this guy is, Lev, uh, I guess, Galinkin. Go Lincoln, Lev Golinkin. Mm-hmm. I challenge him to come on the show because I think uh, he's completely wrong in this editorial and kind of an ass. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, Tom. Uh, but um, uh, uh, Tom here being quiet in the studio. But um, he says the headline is Democrats need to stop pretending they live in a dictatorship. And the theme of it is basically we need to get over it, um, that, uh, you know, we're overstating the case. Uh, this is not a totalitarian government, and, and and we should just we should just relax. Uh, Sorry,
1: I just looked up your the the editorial that you were talking about. Were you able to find um, it? Yeah, I did find it, and uh, unfortunately, CNN puts on their story <laughs> live, so I I, right. I couldn't glance at it. But yes, so. So uh uh He's saying you know, well, we,
0: we go too far. Those of us that are concerned about the law, the rule we keep talking about rule of law and comparing him, making these comparisons to dictators. Uh come on, he's not a dictator. We have these constitutional protections. All the while Trump continues to erode the very guardrails of democracy. That's my no, that's Bernard's opinion.
1: I you know, to say that we're in a dictatorship, I would not claim that, because I do think we still have We have institutional protections, But to say that we're heading down the road to losing our democracy and living in at least an oligarchy where the wealthy and the connected are the ones who call the shots for the rest of us, I think that is an entirely real danger with Trump having now been told by the Republicans in the Senate that there is nothing he could do that would cause anybody but Mitt Romney to sanction him.
0: Regarding the Um, prosecutors quitting, I posted an article on my Facebook that was from the Washington Post that said prosecutors quit amid escalating Justice Department fight over Roger Stone's prison term. And my quote with the Post was, this is how the rule of law dies. Over time, prosecutors, generals, even judges, just do as the president wishes, without any noise or fuss. Trumpism is an insidious disease that is eating away at our democracy. Election 2020 may be our last chance to stand up for the America we love. Do you think that's hyperbolic, what I wrote?
1: No. I think it's a necessary alarm that needs to be sounded.
0: I was hoping you'd say I've overstated the case. Uh, So while you're still here, I... I I, wish
1: you had. I really appreciate you. It's quite disturbing yeah so
0: thank you so much i want to ask you about this military pardons and clemency i still have some other questions for you while i've got an expert like you i've got to squeeze the most out of you um the military pardons and clemency which i know you also have some expertise in uh gallagher and others that the president has pardoned i assume that as commander in chief the president can upend the results of any and all military tribunals slash decisions slash orders is that correct
1: That is indeed correct. I don't think he pardoned Gallagher, uh, but he did pardon two other accused and convicted uh, war criminals who had ordered the murders of unarmed civilians.
0: So, yeah, he is kind of, in an unprecedented way, reaching down into the bowels of the military bureaucracy, right, And, and, and upending, you know, these decisions that have been made by military courts.
1: Oh, absolutely. And there have been, you know, editorial after editorial by members and former members of the military saying that this undermines our ability to discipline troops and require that they abide by the orders of their, you know, rules of
0: engagement. And in, so in fact, the secretary say, of the Navy, that secretary of the Navy that he fired said he was under, under uh, uh, pulling the rug out from underneath military discipline. It seems like he wants discipline to him, uh, you know, respect <laughs> to him, not not so much for the military order of things.
1: Absolutely. I, I think that's right. I think he would like to be a mini Putin in that regard. If the military would be utterly beholden to him, he would like judges in the Justice Department to be beholden to him, and I think his actions make that clear. Uh, and So that's uh, where we so, get into
0: – that's where we as Democrats, small D and big D Democrats, I think that's where we get – into the whole dictatorship turf because we start to say we start to see the signs of authoritarianism. Uh, we see him trying to grasp all the reins of power. whether it be whether it be the courts, the military, anything that could be a check on his power? You see him eliminating, including the so-called adults in the room. You know the 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 Kellys, John and, Kelly, yeah, and, exactly, and, and the other guys. Even frankly, even Tillerson. Uh, who worked for the greatest, one of the worst corporations in the world, longstanding, ExxonMobil, even Tillerson, uh, famously tried to tell him no on various things. No, Mr. President, I can't do. We can't do that legally. I I can't do that. And basically, Tillerson became an annoyance to him. Anybody, any guardrails, anyone that tells him no for any reason. And I guess he got that. Your the previous guest that we had knew him in New York, and of course I've read some books on his his behavior in New York. And he he just was able to bully or buy his way. Uh, Through any and all regulation, anything that might stop him, he either bullied or bought his way. He found that politicians could be bought. He's talked about that publicly. Now he has the power of the state and he seems to see him as the president. Trump, he he, he seems to equate himself with the power of the state, which is an authoritarian kind of fascist way of, of viewing government, is it not?
1: Well, it it, it absolutely ha- it raises those red flags. And I will just say one thing. I will say I don't think it's only Democrats who are concerned about the, I hope the potential demise of our democracy under Trump. I yeah, think well, there I, are a lot li- of Republican ad yeah, 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 that you mentioned. I don't want to make it like that.
0: Yeah, that's what I meant when I said – I probably wasn't clear enough – when I said big D and small D Democrats. When I say right. small, I mean, d- yes, anybody that cares about the When you have Republicans.
1: Republicans like George Conway and that ad that yes. you played, I do think Republicans who are not beholden to and relying on Trump's base and in 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 fear of him are speaking out against yes. it because they quite rightly see the same dangers that that I mean, that large D Democrats. Yes,
0: Bill Kristol and others. I mean, look, George, will I mean, I, my view is real patriots. Okay. Uh, you know, I say small D Democrats, small R Republicans. Okay. People that value the, the democratic Republic that we've enjoyed that most of us, most of us like myself, you know, it was all here. The, the democratic infrastructure, the Republican infrastructure was here. The, you know, I didn't have to go fight for it. I didn't have to shed blood. I mean, Patrick Henry said, give me Liberty, give me death, but the Liberty was here. I had the free speech. I had the free press. I had the freedom of religion and it was real. It was all here. I could exercise it. And for now we can still exercise it. Uh, and, and but maybe we're going to have to fight for it. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, we, we, we've enjoyed it really for free. The infrastructure of the Democratic Republic was all here and all we had to do was maintain it. I mean, Franklin uh, allegedly Franklin said when asked when he left the Philadelphia Convention in the summer heat of 1776, what, what, what do we have uh, a democracy if you can keep it? Exactly. Uh, and And now I guess we're going to be tasked with trying to keep it.
1: Well, I, I would, Bert. Since you 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 are obviously on top of you know recent writing on this, there's a terrific article in the most recent New Yorker magazine by the Harvard historian Jill Lepore on a similar time in our history in the 1930s when democracies around the world were being overturned as they are today, and when we really had flirted with a loss of democracy and what Americans did to try to stave that off. So, Thank you. For,
0: I, I, I find it Jill Lepore on Democracy in Peril then and now, February 3rd, yes. 2020. Uh, and yeah. it
1: really resonates for our time, I think.
0: And I think you're but I think you're exactly right. And I appreciate, uh, of course, appreciate your spending this time with us and your great work, uh Uh, around the country uh, standing up for these things. But I think you're exactly right that uh, it takes Democrats and Republicans, independents, all of us that cherish this uh, nation and the freedoms and the liberty uh, of standing up. And, you know, I've said from the beginning that, you know, just like I stood up to Obama on things I disagreed with him on, on the TPP, you know, some other issues we've discussed here, uh, I I, I voted for him twice, and I felt like that gave me even more, uh, I guess, authority to to stand up and, and, and responsibility. When when I disagreed with them, I mean this is America. absolutely,
1: and, and so, absolutely. You know,
0: I, I that's why I've said, you know, where are the? And there are a few, like you say, the, the Republicans that should be holding him accountable. For gosh sakes, uh, you know, if I had voted for the guy, I would be telegramming and calling the White House and and speaking out. The 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 Republicans, they're the ones. The Trumpians, they're the ones who who should, can, and should better than anybody be holding him accountable.
1: Oh. Absolutely, and I think they're the only ones he cares about. Yes. Because what he has indicated is that he will do everything possible to punish anybody who opposes him, including by being in a different party, like you know, or being having a state that is blue. Again,
0: those are those authoritarian tendencies. Well, if hopefully we can have you back, and we can talk about how. He possibly wins by a strategy of going deep and not broad. This is the first president in my lifetime that I have seen applying a strategy of going deep, having depth of support and never attempting to broaden his base. I don't understand how that is going to be a legal and politi- a viable legal and political strategy if, in fact, we have a free and fair election. Perhaps you can come back and we can talk about that Uh so, uh, Well,
1: I, I'd, I'd be happy to come back. I, I enjoy your, your thoughtfulness. Professor
0: Coble, thank you so much. Appreciate your great work. Uh, have a great rest of the week. Thank you.
1: Okay, thanks. You yeah. too, Bert.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's been a lively program uh, talking about uh, all things Trump and our uh, democracy. And as Benjamin Franklin said, a democracy, if you can keep it. Um, and that means we all have a responsibility to do just that. All of us, Democrats, Republicans, independents, together, making sure that we uh, look after the health of our democracy. So as we close out for today, I look forward to chatting with you again next week. I remind you, be kind to the ones you love, and better yet, be kind to a stranger. You'll feel great, and so will they. See you next week on The Verge Monero Show.